Father, in your written word and through the spoken word, help us to encounter your living word, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, back in uh, Bible times, Jewish people like to call themselves the children of Abraham. Uh, he was their ancient hero par excellence. And today, uh, as Michael said, is the first of six sermons about God and Abraham. It's a relationship which on God's side of amazing grace and on Abraham's of frequent breathtaking faith and occasional humiliating feet of clay. But first, uh, it's good to set the scene. The first 11 chapters of Genesis. On the, the practical level, it doesn't make any difference uh, if you think these chapters are actual history or if you think they are God-inspired uh, parable. Because the message, no matter which view we have, is exactly the same. And here it is. The Bible opens on a massive high, a massive high. God said... Let there be light, let there be dry land, let there be fish and birds and animals and let there be people. And after each let there be, there it is. Let there be light and there was light and God saw that it was over and over again. God saw that it was good, 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 good. It is massive, it is high, it is exciting. But then... Disaster after disaster, leading God to use discipline in an effort to bring humanity back to where it was at the start, where it was meant to be, back into line. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and were disciplined by expulsion from Eden. But that didn't work in bringing people back because their son Cain murdered his brother Abel. And his extra discipline was to be marked and banished. But that didn't work. I mean, five generations later, we read of a certain Lamech who killed someone who had wounded him, and then he claimed that his revenge was ten times more satisfying than Cain's. Not much repentance there. Just one more example of the rampant spreading wickedness. And so we read now that God was grieved to his heart and he ramped up the discipline to the absolute maximum. Noah's flood and most of society where they knew it was washed out, wiped out. But very little was learned even from that extraordinary bit of discipline because people went on to promote their own glory above God's glory at the Tower of Babel, leading God to discipline them by causing confusion to stymie their plans. It's a grim story after such a fabulous, extraordinary opening. Now, we today are part of that failed humanity. Now, we do have our noble heroes, but we ought not to be too confused. Mother Teresa was a martinet. Princess Diana broke her marriage vow. Both JFK and even Martin Luther King were adulterers. Lance Armstrong raised millions of dollars for cancer research, but he'd used drugs to win his half a dozen Tour de France. And we're so embarrassed today to remember what heroes we made 
of Alan Bond and Rolf Harris and Bill Cosby. And they're the heroes. The ordinary people, you and I, are hardly free from taint. So much of our social media is a sewer of vicious bile poured publicly over the victims by often anonymous assailants. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and your neighbour as yourself. God's number one commandment is, for most folk, a joke. We desperately need to be saved. As in Genesis, so it is today. We too need to be saved. And God's stage-by-stage -stage discipline of Adam and Cain and so on and so on, across those generations of the first 11 chapters of our Bible, it was always going to fail. The punishment and discipline was never, ever going to bring about the reformation that was needed. There needed to be another, more drastic response to sin. And in Abram, this plan B is launched. What a plan and what a launch. Because God stepped in. He took the initiative, possibly in these first three verses of chapter 12, possibly the most important three sentences in the Old Testament. Certainly good candidates for that competition. And it begins, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred to the land that I will show you. Now it's not a suggestion, it's an order. But he is God, so fair enough. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine, I think, Abram being pleased at getting this blunt instruction, put yourself in his sandals. But before he can object, the message goes on with words that are far beyond anything, surely, that Abram could have ever dreamt of, even in his wildest fantasies. Because after God says, go to this land that I will show you, he then says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, so you are a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Just imagine if, uh, if you got a phone call from Lotto last week saying that you had won last weekend's 30 million plus prize with a ticket that some kind person had given you and you didn't even know about it. You would not have been more astonished than Abram was to receive these words. And these are not just God foreseeing what's going to happen. This is God promising something that he is going to make happen. God is not looking into the future and reporting what he sees coming down the track. He is stepping into history because when he makes promises, he keeps them. And this is something that he is going to deliberately do because this is what God is like. He knows we are incurable rebels. He knows we will never get it fully right. He knows we are lost, but he cares and he is our only hope. So, back in Abram's day, God acts. He gives Abram a breathtaking order, as well as an unbelievable promise. He acts. And since God doesn't change, 
He keeps caring and he keeps acting because that's who he is and what he's like, so he cares and acts for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son is true for us. Or in St Paul's words, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So let's look at these promises that God makes to Abram. Out of the blue, unexpected, unanticipated, undeserved. Abram is 75. He looks to be pretty wealthy, but he is childless. Now, children in those days were, were vital to people's estimate of themselves of whether they'd been a success because having children, especially sons, that was the only way to carry on your name into the future. They didn't see any other way. Without children, then you ended when you died. You left no trace. Wealth and power were really nice and desirable, but children, they were trumps. And Abram had none. It was a long, growing, deep disappointment. And he hears these words, I will make you a great nation. Cannot imagine anything that would have pleased him more. All the other things that went with it in the promise were, compared to that, just icing on the cake. Yes, God will lead him to a land where this is all going to happen. Well, that's nice. God will bless him. That presumably means make him wealthy so that he can look after his family in nice style. That's pretty good. But even better, God will protect him. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. I mean, what more could Abram possibly have wanted or wished or imagined? And it all comes out of the blue, unearned, undeserved. This is a gobsmacking blessing, if it comes true. It's all in the future. But as we who live now after Jesus, as we know, that's what God's like. He is a God of grace. He showers us with endless undeserved blessings just because God is love. God gives us fabulous presents, not the same as Abram. He gives us fabulous presents as well. I mean, Abram was just the forerunner, like the shadow before the reality appears. God offers us forgiveness of sins. We can never earn that. God offers us the gift of eternal life that Adam had lost. He offers us a personal link with him being born again. He offers us the company and the inspiration of his Holy Spirit. And this Holy Spirit grows the character of Jesus in us, bit by bit, untwisting our twists. And this is the Spirit who blesses us with the power to be able to love the unlovely, to have peace under pressure, and to even experience a joy when disaster comes. Now, our blessings make Adam's blessing look a bit dull by comparison. But to Adam, God's promise was mind-scramblingly enormous. He was going to be given a family. After all those decades of being childless and producing no children, there is going to come a family. 
and they're going to have a land to live in and they're going to be wealthy and he will be famous and there's protection on top of all that. And he's at this stage, hearing this promise, he is 75 and he is childless. Now there's one more string to this promise that God made in verse 3. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's the last line of the blessing. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I can't imagine what Abram made of that. What could it mean? What would it have meant to him? I mean, I can see his jaw dropping at the concept of having a family and having a land and being wealthy and being protected. But this bit, I can just see him giving that a bit of a shoulder shrug. Well, whatever. I mean, what did God mean? In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I've got no idea what that meant to Abram. But back in the Adam and Eve story, at the very end of the Adam and Eve story, God says to the serpent, who is Satan, Eve's offspring will strike your head and you will strike his heel. That is, Satan will damage some human, but that man will strike the serpent's head. He will crush the serpent. He will break Satan's hold, but it will cost him. Eve's offspring will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, fulfilling this prediction, this last part of the promise, this is the way that Abram was going to bless all the peoples of the earth. It will happen 2,000 years later, off into the future, when Abram's descendant, Jesus of Nazareth, dies on the cross. The serpent had struck his heel and he is raised from the grave. Eve's offspring struck his head so that all who believe can have everlasting life and escape from the serpent's control. Eve's offspring will strike your head. So God's great plan for the nations of the world takes its first concrete, earthly, human, actual step apart from being an idea, when God makes this out-of-the-blue promise to Abram, even though, of course, the idea had been there at least since the fall, if not since eternity. So even horrendous discipline of those first 11 chapters of Genesis would never work. So God makes his plan, chooses Abram of all the people on the earth at that time, steps in, speaks, makes his mighty promise and it is all undeserved grace. We don't deserve saving but God is love and he acts by grace to save. Now there is an important PS. Yes, God has promised, so that's grace, but Abram must then respond by trusting that promise. That's faith. And quite a lot of faith. In fact, a mountain of faith it's called for as Abram's response to God's massive promise. You see, Abram is 75 years of age. He's never going to see himself as the leader of the nation or even of a tribe simply because there isn't time. I mean, of course, just one son will send him giddy with delight after all these decades of none but one child is hardly the guarantee of thousands, let alone millions of descendants, a nation. I will make you a great nation, 
It's the opening line of God's promise. This had to push Abram's belief to the full. I mean, how would you have gone? How would you have responded to that promise from God? Well, Abram's response was magnificent. Where was this new land going to be? Because wherever it was, it'll mean new neighbours, it'll mean a new society, uh, and he will be an intruder, a newcomer, an outsider, presumably unwelcome, possibly living in a new climate, needing new farming techniques. There'll be new natural dangers. And how far away is it going to be? And what about all that he had acquired living near the modern city of Mosul? He'd acquired these on his own, but also he'd inherited significantly from his father. All his possessions and his flocks and his array of labourers and servants. I mean, this was so daunting. How do you relocate such an enterprise? Put yourself in his shoes. How do you organise so much and so many? What do you do for food on the way to wherever? Food for man and food for beast. It's going to take weeks. What a headache. So much could go wrong as well. And all that is expected so that he can believe a promise. Act on a promise. But we read... So Abram went, and his nephew Lot went with him. By the time he'd made the decision and done the wenting, he knew where he was going. We read, uh, to Canaan, modern Israel. This is a good 500 kilometres from where he was. And he was 75. That's a very noble age, 75. Hand up those who are 75. <laughs> I don't want to be where he was then. I'm happy to be his age, but he's 75, his wife's 65, 500 kilometres on foot, never been there before. That's Sydney to Wagga, Sydney to Dubbo, Sydney to past Port Macquarie. This is no pleasant stroll. But God called Abram and Abram went with nothing concrete, just a promise. God promised by grace. Abram believed the promises and so he obeyed. That's faith. Acting on God's promises. That is faith. And that is the pattern for us. We too are called to make big decisions on promises that we cannot yet see. There are great reasons for trusting God's promises. I mean, the resurrection for a start. But still, we cannot now see forgiveness. We cannot see eternal life. We're not in it yet. We cannot see, often, the spirit within us. As Abram focused on the promise to him, so all his life came into line with that promise. An extraordinary readjustment because he trusted that God would deliver. And we'll come back to this over and over again over these next five weeks. Dismissing the difficulties because of the promise. And so too we are called to focus on God's promises to us 
and to live fully trusting God, no matter how difficult that might become. St Paul said, set your mind and seek the things that are above where Christ is at the right hand of God. That's what you do if you've got faith. Adam was called to leave behind relatives and leave the nation that he'd grown up in and leave the familiar and to leave the safe and to leave behind his culture and his position in the community. Leave all those behind. And we are to be similarly available because he's God and we are his servants. We are called to deliberately look for our life's chief purpose and our life's satisfaction and our life's ultimate joy in Jesus. Because Jesus says to us, trust me that I have paid for your sins. Trust me that I have saved you. Trust me that I am taking you to where I am. And trust me now by building your lifestyle on me. Build your character on me. Build your inner world on me. Build your dreams on me. Because, as Jesus said, I have come that you may have life in all its fullness.